since brevity is the soul of wit. More of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward, an infinite and endless liar, an hourly promise breaker, the owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertained. I'd beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. And I'm Aiden. And this is the Bix Pod. Yes, it is. Welcome back for another rousing discussion of a history play. <laughs> that but, was a good summary right there, Lindsay. Yes. But no, but but truly, um, this this rounds out the third part of Henry the Sixth. Um, which, if you've been listening, we covered one and two in the last couple of months. Mm-hmm. We did not like part one. Nope. We greatly liked part two. Yep. And I'm kind of on the fence about part three. It was not. It was not the best. I think if I had to rank them in order of ascending preference, <laughs> yes, it would be part, part one, then part three, then part oh, two. Oh yeah, okay. like part two being the best. The best ascending. You're going up in order. Yeah, yeah. That's what that yeah, means. Yeah. Uh, I disagree. I think it was worse than part one. Really? In some, in some wow. respects, there are there are a lot. Let's just say watching it performed, it does have a bit more allure to me. Uh, mm-hmm. When I read it, though. I was bored to death by really? this play. Really? Very much. I'm I'm flipped on that completely. Really? Yeah, I didn't enjoy watching it performed, but I thought reading it was fun. Huh. And I, and I no, let's just put it this way. I thought it was easier to read. I thought that yes. it felt, and I don't know why that is. There's maybe some question of authorship going into it. it. It again feels very much like it's not one hand writing everything. There are some scenes that go on for quite a bit and and really hammer home some extended metaphors the scene with the father and his son, son and, and the son, son and his father, father and henry, henry in the, the middle father of the realm yeah oh, like man. i mean i mean it's not the most dramatic but it's more melodrama than anything yeah. but i found that the writing it doesn't reach the great heights of poetic elegance that some of shakespeare's later plays did or no. even that you know henry the second had or henry, sorry henry, henry the, the sixth, sixth part, part two, two had yeah. But um, I found it more. It was an easier read. It is, and a, that made it more enjoyable. Okay, that's that, that's fair. It is a fairly quick uh, play to read. Um, there are some scenes that extend quite a bit, but there's also a lot of action. I mean, this is very much similar to part one in the sense that there's a ton of battles. Uh, I think we counted this six. This had the most, well, I think there are four staged battles, but yes. there are Our other six, ones referenced. Yes, battles referenced. And it's the largest number of battles in any of Shakespeare's plays. So oh, that's right here. Yeah. Um, which, as if you listen to our, our part one uh, episode, that is something that I think part one suffers from. Yeah. Um, here it's, I think because they're the big named battles of the Wars of the Roses, it's like the Battle of Barnet and the Battle of Tewkesbury, the Battle of St. Albans. Like yeah. these are these are big plays that kind of loom large in yeah. the English legend. So maybe that makes it a little bit. I find the characters are a little more fleshed out in this version uh, or in this play, especially if you've read parts one and two, you've got a lead up into all the major characters, especially Richard, Duke of York, uh, yeah. Henry the Sixth is quite a well-developed character. And at this even point. even a character like Edward the Fourth, who doesn't really come into play until Part Two, and even then, it's kind it's of a marginal end, role. Yeah. Um, you kind of see why he would feel the way he does about and and goes about the things that he does. Mm-hmm. Queen Margaret, very similar. Um, so that that does make it a little bit more interesting. I think that's part of it too, is that we kind of understand the motivations a bit better, having read the first two parts. Um, in order of course these plays were not written in order no. we're presenting them in order for ease of your listening pleasure and, and our watching. sanity yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um but they were not written in order i think part two is was generally considered to have been written first yeah then one then maybe three or three or and then something one. like that it's not super clear we could be are, wrong on that yeah as well. yeah and there's not a whole lot of of documentation to support any particular structure we've done it this way uh for the sake of reading it as an enlarged narrative and uh, i think it kind of works well that way. I think it did help lend a certain air to this. And the BBC production, which is, of course, the only one that's ever been made about these in their full entire glory, mm-hmm. uh, use the same actors throughout. So it uh, does make it a little bit easier. It does make it a bit easier. And you do grow attached a little bit more. What we've missed entirely in this, the course of this introduction is the uh, 60 or 30 second intro, which is yes. Aiden's turn yes. to do that. So Aiden, do you have... Uh, 
the ability, the strength, the wherewithal to give us a 30-second recap? I think so. You think so? Yep. On your mark, Aiden, you can give us a brief 30-second synopsis of the third part of Henry VI. So, uh, Richard is Duke of York, and he's sitting on the throne. And Henry's like, hey, that's my throne. And Richard's like, okay, but it's my throne now. And then Henry's like, I'll give you the throne after I die. And Richard's like, okay. Then he leaves. Then uh, Henry's wife wants to take over the throne again. So they fight. Uh, Richard takes over the throne, but he dies. Uh, So his son, Edward, takes over the throne. He's Edward IV. He reigns for a little bit. Henry gets kicked to Scotland, comes back with an army. Uh, Well, his wife does, of course, because he doesn't do much of anything. Uh, Takes over again with uh, Warwick, and then he loses and dies, and he's no longer the king. And that was close. That's not bad. Not bad. I always start too detailed and then fall into, like, just general, oh, things happened. I, I need more practice at these, I think. I think you do. I think you need to work on your brevity. Brevity is the soul of wit, yes. as Shakespeare said. Yes, you um, But no, that that's not bad. I mean, you did spend 15 <laughs> seconds of that on scene one, but that's that's okay. It's a that's good scene. Okay. It kind of sets everything in motion it does. there. So. Um, but yeah, generally, this, this play takes... It starts where part two ends. It yeah. starts with the first Battle of St. Albans, which kicks off the War of the Roses proper, um, which was 1455. Was it? Yes, because the okay. Battle of Bosworth Field was 1485, and this lasted for 30, 30 years. years. Okay. So sure. I can do math. You're um, So it starts there, and it kind of takes you through to uh, about 1471, I think. So really, the the action of the play takes place over about 16 years, which. Uh, but it's only three and a half hours, of course. Yeah, and that of course. Is a problem. But it, it is a it is a bit of a problem. But I don't know. Not I, I guess if you're looking at this allegorically. Which you kind of have to do, and it's how most productions approach it, um, which is something I kind of want to get into when we talk about the battle scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of have to look at this as less of a literal interpretation, because like there's one scene where um, Edward the Fourth has just gotten married, but then he's already got a kid. Well, he's not even married. He's yet. not he's, even married. He's he gets like married in a couple in, scenes yes, later. Yeah. Intentions. The intention is for him to get married, and then he like his he uncle Richard yeah. is, or no, his brother Richard who becomes Richard III, is already talking about uh, Edward's son. Being so, in the way of his Yeah, so I mean, this is all stuff that um, that is problematic from a historical standpoint, but nobody well, goes to Shakespeare to look for pure history, do they? No, of course not. And to be fair, it does have dramatic license, but it, it I mean, things like that were really noticeable, and they kind of just detract and distract from the the kind of arching narrative being told, which is one of civil strife. Um, and it's, I mean, it's not, it's not, uh, painful or it's not, you know, it doesn't really like hurt you in any way to watch like, oh, this has such a big plot hole because you realize none of that really matters. It is the civil war. It is this, uh, measure for measure vengeance that really drives so much of the, the story and the characters, uh, in this particular play so so those, it doesn't really need to it be historically yeah, exactly that's yeah. what i mean when i say it's read for allegory like you're looking yeah. at this as like a family really a finam a family dynastic do you see i, I portmanteau those yeah. i finastic those <laughs> it's a fanastical squabble it is um between uh the lancasters and the yorks mm-hmm. so really it doesn't matter and in the end it it is as aiden says it's a measure for measure eye for an eye up until the midpoint of the play when you get introduced to the monomaniacal Richard yeah. uh, who ends well, up his, becoming Richard III. His his vengeance is with God. You kind of get the sense. He, sort nothing of. can really take yeah. the place of, of the injustice that was done to him at birth, right? Um, so I think let's talk first about the strengths of the play. Yeah. What do you think, Aiden, are the biggest strengths of this play? I think that... Uh, warlike structure works better here the back and forth and the the backstabbings and battles Um, I think it works better here and I can't tell in comparison to sorry to part one and I can't tell if that's just because I was prepared for it after watching part one which followed a similar structure Mm -hmm. of a battle over here and someone wins and then a battle over there and the other team wins and you know it was this back and forth uh, kind of structure but also uh, it works better in this sense because you you are a little more familiar with the characters and the characters' mm-hmm. motivations are a little clearer. It's not just war on France for glory's sake mm-hmm. and you know the the kingdom of England. It is personal feuds. It is you killed my father, prepare to die <laughs> kind of stuff, yes. right? So uh, it has a certain uh, a more uh, thicker pull, I would say. I'd agree with you. I think uh, I was going to say the same thing that. Um, 
part where part one kind of struggles is with these back and forth battle scenes that I didn't mind so much here and I think it's because we have very clear sides not that we didn't in part one it was the French and the English it was just more nebulous right because you had these um these figures who rise to the top you have like Joan of Arc and Mm -hmm. you have the English Talbot um who are kind of representative of their side struggles but they're not as captivating as yeah, any of the Edward the Fourth yeah. and and Queen Margaret, who is really the defender of of the, the Lancastrian. Lancastrian side. Yeah. Um, and I definitely want to talk about Queen Margaret here, but yes. um, Cersei is a very interesting <laughs> to come back to the Game. We got to come back to Game of Thrones. Uh, yeah, so I think it's just having those struggles clearly delineated in not nation versus nation, but this is one family versus another family and you have very clear and very strong personalities at the heads of both of those families for all intents and purposes. Mm -hmm. I think that makes it more engaging. Yes. Um, I also think what it picks up from part two, part two was really about that, that court intrigue that we talked about that is leading into the war. Yeah. yeah, Which is really interesting um, and marks off all of the best of Shakespeare's later uh, court mm-hmm. plays or or royal plays, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Even you know the yeah the yeah, tragedies, yeah. right? Yeah. It's all about the backstabbing that happens with courtiers, and that's what Part Two has here. You have that a bit with a character like Warwick, who yeah, you know you can see sense. how the personal becomes political, or yeah. how the political becomes personal in varying degrees. Um, you get that a bit with some of the things that happen uh, with Queen Margaret, with Louis, the, mm-hmm. the King of France, and his daughter Princess yeah. Bona. But it's um, but, but it's not as nuanced, and it doesn't have no. because it has the immediacy of well, there has to be a battle now to solve this political right. intrigue that we've created, mm-hmm. and then it's immediately thrown into a war right. uh, with a clear winner, and so then it, that, it comes back. And yeah. I think that's why it's kind of a mix between part one and two, and yeah. I think that's why I put it in in between okay. those two because it kind of melds. It takes the best of both. I think, well, not really the best of part one, but it takes elements of both and it doesn't quite reach the heights of, of part two, but yeah. it's not as, doesn't sink to the lows of part one. No, um, and, and the other thing I thought it did well, but not as well as part two again, is is this kind of question of kingship and the yeah. source of power again. Yeah. And that was very much the source of uh, a lot of interest for me in part two. Right. Part three also addresses it primarily through Henry as yes. this kind of powerless powerful figure you know he is he's just uh he's a mute figure uh politically uh but he has this deep intense kind of uh insight into the nature of uh kingship kingship and ruling but also just you know what is good uh, you know, well, yeah, his, he's a deeply motto, moral character, yes, isn't he? Right? In this totally amoral period. Yeah, right? and I think that's what makes I, I felt I found myself um, feeling way more sympathy for Henry, whereas before I felt like he was very ineffectual. And we've talked about this on the podcast that he was kind of a pathetic figure. Mm-hmm. But we're also reading this through a lens of a culture that has been deeply ingrained with these war heroes and yeah. you know Winston Churchill and mm-hmm. um, General Patton and all of these great military. <laughs> Military figures who loom very large in the Western legend, the yeah. Western mind consciousness, or whatever you want to call it. Um, so it's hard to see the 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 um, the virtue, I guess, of a king who doesn't want any doesn't that. want to be a king. And yeah. we get this great monologue that yeah. Henry delivers about how he wishes, if only he could be a shepherd, yeah. and have white hairs lead him to a, an ear, or to a, a grave, right? Yeah. Not an early grave. As he's probably going to feel <laughs> yeah. as a king, right? Like yeah. kings don't usually die of natural causes no. in this period of time. Yeah. So, um, and, and he is a very deeply pious man. And so it's his morality centers the play and really does provide the center of the play. If you look at um, his monologue at the Battle of one of them. One of them. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was going to say Towton, but I don't think it's Towton. It might have been Towton. It might have been Towton. I can't remember. It's the, it's one of the big ones. Yeah, I think so, it might be. Yeah, because Towton was the bloodiest battle. Yes, as we talked yes. about it was the the worst battle ever fought on English soil. Yeah. Um, and so his monologue there is really the the heart of the play. I think if you if you look at it that way. Yeah. Um, so I think that kind of leads into another one of my points about a strength of the play is that the characterization is kind of good. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I was I was quite captivated by Henry, as I mentioned. Yep. Yep. Um, Margaret. Queen Margaret is. We'll definitely be talking about her. For sure. I, well, why not now? Okay, sure. We've got, we've let's list them off. Henry, yep. Margaret. Um, we've got Richard. You got Edward. Um, yeah, Edward's, yeah, okay. 
I wouldn't initially list him. That's all. I, no, I found but I he think, was kind I of think flat. He, but well, but I think it's interesting that he he comes to even though he is kind of a one note character, yeah. his actions, which are, are historically so yes. true. Yeah. Um, really do drive the rest of the plot and you yeah. don't necessarily see it coming. Yeah. Right? Well, because his character isn't built that well. No. That's, that's part well, of the problem, probably, right? but, but it is true to the historical fact yes. of it, right? Yes. So, um, so let's, let's start with Henry the King. Yeah. Um, as I said, he kind of felt more sympathetic. He yeah. is um, plagued by, I don't know how to put this. Yeah, it's not, it's kind of quite indecision. It's, it's, he's... He's realized he is no longer a political actor. Yeah. So he's very happy to be a pawn. Yes. It essentially is what it boils down to. It. You know, at one point he's railing against, you know, life's injustices and the, the injustice of him being forced to make kingly decisions. Uh, and then he just right away, he's like, oh, I'll just follow my wife wherever she goes. Yeah. That's what makes me happy. Right. And it's yeah. so he's he's willingly given up uh, uh, when he's crowned again by Warwick the yes. kingmaker brings him back and he says well I don't want to be king you can take over Warwick and then yeah you know yeah. like uh, he's literally that upfront about it he's just like I don't want to be king um, and I'm very sad that I have to be I think it's really cool that you have this playing out on a stage in a, in a play where there's an actor cast in a role playing a character who is miscast in his role. I think there's some really cool meta shit going on there. Like, I don't think that Henry VI was meant... He was meant to be king because of his lineage. Yeah. But he was never supposed to play that role. Yeah. He was never going to be a good king. No. He, it was just not part of his makeup. No. And I think that is that is kind of interesting. And I, I, I would love to see this yeah. performed in that way with that in mind you know having a miscast actor maybe or something or <laughs> well having initially who, he was right well, yeah, when we right? watched the BBC production that's exactly like, true this we're guy's like, 55 why? years old yeah he's supposed to be playing a, a nine month old baby yeah. no not, well, not really but, but yeah um, so yeah and, and he does kind of represent like we said that moral center of the play um, in his in his speeches the monologue that he gives but also in the decisions that he does make so in the in the very first scene the opening scene um richard duke of york and his sons and followers i have, described this text okay you did you did 15 <laughs> seconds of it yeah. but they've broken into the the throne room and the king comes to uh kind of interrupt their celebration and he makes this deal where he says the Yorkist line will be my inheritors. Yeah. I will disinherit my own son in order to prevent further bloodshed. And it's kind of a shrewd move. It's something that if that had actually happened and played out, you wouldn't have 30 years of political strife. You yeah. wouldn't have had however many tens of thousands of people dying on these major battles mm-hmm. um, in the middle of the, the 15th century. So um, it, it plays very well into his almost pacifism. Mm-hmm. Which is a weird thing to have in a king, but but he is kind of pacifistic. He's very moralistic. He's a Christian, a deeply Christian yep, king very. who could have been a saint. And in fact, some of the people at the time believed that he was a saint. That's mm-hmm. what explained the stupors he would go into. He was receiving messaging from God and stuff, yeah. right? Because that's historically accurate as well. Although not mentioned. Not in mentioned the in the play. Yeah. But, um, but so he takes on this kind of aura, I think, of... Watching it now, watching it as a modern audience, you can kind of see that there's some wisdom. There's deep wisdom yeah. in that, that he wants to avoid all this bloodshed. Yeah. And of course, it's it's Richard who breaks the vow and his wife, Margaret, who breaks the vow. Yeah. He doesn't break the vow. No. He holds He's very true to it. the entire Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that it's very interesting that it's those two characters who, who barrel forward and start attacking each other again, almost behind his back. But instantly, as soon as he... They, like basically the scene is over Richard and his sons are waging war on yep. Margaret yep. Margaret's marching on their castle like yep. I mean nobody cares he is such an ineffectual king and that's that's kind of a tragedy in a sense that that here's this king who tried very hard to be a good leader and even when he's restored to the throne and he's talking to um Exeter or one of his mm-hmm. his um people the subjects yeah when he's under under guard in London yeah um, he says, why would why would the people want Edward over me? I've done, even though they've wronged me, even though they've, I've never raised an army against them, mm-hmm. I understand I'm not, you know, delaying decisions because I'm vengeful towards them. 
why would they prefer Edward over me? Like he genuinely doesn't understand it. Yeah. And that's also a failing as a king, but it's yeah. it's something virtuous as a person. Yeah, exactly. So I kinda like that. Well and that's and that's the thing is that whole character is built around being ill suited to be a king, yes. to being a good person. And that it, that does provide that moral centering for the play, um, which is not unique uh, amongst Shakespearean no. plays. There's usually a character that fulfills that purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that it's the titular character in this play yeah. uh, who has no agency whatsoever yeah. is the interesting part because um, that moral center is completely sidelined. Yeah. And that's what a civil war does, right? Yeah. Like that's what uh, Shakespeare's kind of getting across in here is that everybody can kind of realize and after watching this performance that Henry was the good guy mm-hmm. and not only does he get murdered by Richard III, but he gets tossed to the side. He's he's abandoned. Even his own servants, when he explains that beautiful passage where he's like, oh, you guys are like this this tuft of uh, fur or whatever it is that I've blown on the wind mm-hmm. and it comes back to me based mm-hmm. on the other wind and you're just tossed back and forth between the winds and you don't really even understand what it is that a king does. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, it's a fairly telling passage and he's trying to like explain it to these people and then at the end of that scene, he's like, but I'll go wherever you want. Yeah. You know, like he yeah. he, he has that moral clarity, yeah. um, but it, he's not empowered to even explain it yeah. to the people that in a way that they'll understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it's interesting that um, this is kind of an example of Shakespeare, the playwright, or the group of playwrights who wrote this play yeah. under the name of Shakespeare, <laughs> um, how they take a historical... Thing and a historical event and kind of extrapolate it and graft it onto modern events and modern um, ideals, right? Mm-hmm. So you have uh, a king who is typifying more, uh, I hate to use the word pacifistic again, but nonviolent strategies with a populace that is starting to embrace that kind of ideals right they don't want to be at war they've seen the aftermath of this war they they maybe didn't live through it themselves but they know people and their families who may have died in these wars you know two three generations earlier mm-hmm. um a, a strain of humanism is kind of grafting yeah, yeah. through this yep, yep. and i think that's that's kind of an early example of shakespeare um adapting for his audience yes, in a way a that bit. they would understand that it's it's the same way that we take a play like Richard the Third and and turn it into an allegory for the World War, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or something like that. Richard the Third becomes Hitler or yeah. something like that. Um, so that's kind of interesting to see it happening at that time. And I wish I knew more about the history of you know the specific history is you know that might be something we can you mean delve the source materials that well the source material but also what was what was going on in the social m- mind of the people who would be watching these plays uh, yes. how would they uh, Shakespeare's time yeah how would they have actually been been viewing this yeah. right because yeah. um, he was writing it for them but he was also writing it for the descendants of the one who would eventually yeah. come to the throne who we meet at the very end of this so yeah. Henry Tudor yeah. who became Henry the seventh but um, let's talk about Queen Margaret and yeah. Edward the Fourth, and maybe by by extension Richard the. Well, let's Richard, talk about Margaret first because I want to yeah. talk about Richard. Let's do it. Stand a little bit. So not Richard the Third. I'm talking about Edward the Fourth's father. Oh, okay. Who is kind of the start of like it's yes. him versus Queen Margaret, but yeah. then when he dies, it's Edward the Fourth. So they're kind yeah. of the same. They that, represent the same. It's true. Aim. They right? are. They are the the white roses. Yeah. So, yes. um, yeah, and Margaret is a really interesting character in this play in particular because mm-hmm. she takes on the warlike role. Yeah. Uh, she is the manly figure that Henry the Sixth is not. Yeah. Um, and she basically uh, pursues and generates the entire strain of activities that lead to the wars writ large and eventually Henry's uh, re-imposition on the crown uh, right before he loses it again. So it's it's a really interesting arc for this character that we met again in part one Mm -hmm. as just a woman who was in love with the Earl who was sent to pick her out of obscurity. Uh, And here she, she goes through the whole range of victory to very very rough defeat when her son edward is killed in front of her yeah. that's kind of the end of her character and it's yeah. it's a very brutal ending in that sense yeah it is and, and especially for someone who i mean i i don't love her but i like her a lot as mm-hmm. a as a female character because she does embody kind of all of the things that 
I like about Lady Macbeth. Mm-hmm. Um, but and, she's more active. But she's way more active. She's actually she's like leading, leading the, the armies. Yeah. And at one point in this place, she actually chides her husband, like yeah. the king, yeah. King Henry the Sixth. She's like, get off the battlefield. You're demoralizing our troops. troops yeah, my troops. Yeah. Like they do like, better when I'm just yeah. So them, yeah. she's leading these armies. Yeah. She and is she wins not, that battle. By the she way, she does. <laughs> like this is what's crazy. Now I don't know about the historical yeah, I, fact yeah, of this. I don't think she led. I can't. I would think we would know more about her if she did. But this is something we will look. Up when yeah. we when we actually post this episode, we'll look this up and add to the notes. Uh, yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah. So that's that's really fascinating that she's this powerful, active figure who who does, and it's commented on when when she kills Richard, Duke of York. Mm-hmm. Um, she's her one of her soldiers, Clifford, whose father was killed in part two by um, Duke of York by yeah. the Duke of York. Um, he's killed the Duke of York's youngest son, the Earl of Rutland. Mm-hmm. And he's just a young boy. And and the Duke of York is aghast at this. And he he's condemning, because Margaret takes a cloth that's been soaked in the Rutland's blood of blood. Rutland's blood yeah. and hands it to him and say, dry your tears. If you can cry over this, dry your tears with this. And the Duke of York is just aghast. He's like, women are, and he lists off all the things that women are supposed to be in contrast to what she is. Yeah. And I think it's such a fantastic scene that that in the version we watched, so the, the I forget the name of the director, but it's the BBC yeah. from 1983, I think. Yeah. Um, the actress who plays Margaret plays it very stone-faced. Like she, her expression does not change as he's listing off this litany of reasons why she is not a woman, why she's hardly a, a human. Yeah. Because even the worst wretch would, wouldn't do this. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, she is, she's completely de-sexed in order to play this role mm-hmm. I don't know I just think it's as a powerful female figure even though she does horrible horrible things I think it's kind of inspiring because she doesn't again like we talked about in our Women of Shakespeare episode um, and a few other places elsewhere I think in our um, episode where, where we talked about our favorite place. characters yeah. um She's not someone who has to hide her femininity, even though she's been de-sexed, like, in a yeah, way, yeah. Um, and is viewed as a male-dominant figure, almost. Mm-hmm. She's still a woman. She's still a mother. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't hide the fact that she is a woman. You know, it's it almost becomes one of the many things in her arsenal, because nobody would suspect that a woman would do this, and here, yet, she's doing it, you yeah. know? So it's it's something that is kind of, kind of like Joan of Arc in part one. Yeah, to an right? extent, except for there's there's not the moral condemnation, not except at for all. that except for that speech really right. um that focuses on her gender. Whereas uh the Joan of Arc, you know, is burned at a stake and called yes. a witch and a yes. whore and all these other things. Uh she does get her come up She does get her come up and it is in a very kind of it, it highlights her femininity in a sense that it's yes. her son that's murdered in front yeah. of her. Um but you know she's not explicitly condemned by all the all the no. rest of the cast uh, for being a, a warrior woman no. type, right? No, uh, like they they shrink back from her when they yeah. you know charge forward on something. She tells them even the people who are coming to kill her at the end, like under orders her, of Edward yeah, the yeah, Fourth. Yeah, she's like, no, no you stop. Yeah. Like, and they listen. <laughs> back off. Yeah, and and yeah, exactly. So it's kind of. Yeah, and it, it is interesting that uh, she she's taken on this role because in the first two plays she's she has a political role, definitely, especially in part two. She's she's the one who's kind of setting mm-hmm. in, in motion a lot of things that piss people off and yeah. eventually drive the the Yorkists to revolt. But well, her presence is all that's needed to exactly, drive the Yorkists. Yeah, exactly. To like the very fact that she married the king is is enough for them to hate yeah. her. Um, and so she's. She's kind of not concerned about their perception of no, her. No, she in just the way leans that, into it. She's yeah, like, well, exactly. fine. If you want to call me a wolf wrapped in a woman's hide, then, then I'm going to bite you. Or a tiger wrapped yeah, in a woman's hide. Yeah. Then, yeah. Or, yeah, I'm confusing the metaphors because the, they also they, call her the call she wolf of things. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. But, yeah, she's like, yeah, then fine. Then I'll, I'll eat your face. Yeah, yeah. And, and she does. Yeah. So it's kind of inspiring in a way. Yeah. You should be worried, Aiden. Are you? But you're comparing yourself to Margaret. No, I'm just saying it's, it's something that I, I want to aspire to. Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I right. support you. you know, <laughs> she wolfing. <laughs> um, yeah, she's pretty. She's pretty badass. Um, how about 
let's talk about Richard and his son, yeah. Edward. Yeah. Uh, well, Richard, again, because he, he dies fairly early in the play. Yeah. He loses, uh, I think, the second battle. I don't remember. Uh, it's the one where she he's like, oh, what do we have to worry about a yeah. woman general? And then she captures and kills him. Yeah. Um, and again, his character, because you have the weight of part two, especially. Yes. But his, I mean, his driving ambition is what uh, kind of drove, <laughs> again, all the way from part one, the, mm-hmm. the, the rivalry. Like, mm-hmm. his, he picked the white rose from the wall and mm-hmm. said, you guys are with me, you're wearing the white rose, right? Yeah. Uh, about some obscure legal matter, which still bothers me to this day. But anyways, uh, <laughs> so in that sense, if you carry that weight with you, if you just saw this play on its own, I don't think he would stand up as a character very no. much at all. No. Um, again, he's he seems semi-reasonable in the sense that he allows Henry to... Uh, take back the throne and he'll just inherit when Henry dies Um, but then he's quickly like it takes like three lines of Richards to convince him oh yeah okay let's go claim the crown again Uh, so it doesn't really make much sense uh, outside of that context he almost seems if you if you look at this play in isolation he almost is a mirror of Henry but on the Yorkist side in that he's very easily blown which way he goes which doesn't hold necessarily from the second play where he is very forthright in his and and even you know for me I'm like well no he has a better claim to the throne even though he descends from a a strange branch or you know Mm -hmm. of that that Plantagenet tree um, he does have a better claim to the throne it's remarked on by Warwick, I think, that Henry's claim is 32 years old or 60 years old or something like yeah. that. Three score and two. Is that what it is? I think it's... That's what 62? That is that 62? Because a score is 20? 20, is it? I think so. So 60-some years? British. I don't know. <laughs> it was a fortnight ago. That's all. <laughs> Not the game fortnight. Yeah, I know. The two-week period. In, yes. Anyway. Um, yeah, so, uh, so he does... I mean ostensibly he has a better claim to the throne or he has a strong claim to the throne mm-hmm. and henry even recognizes that that if the yorks the yorkist side is allowed to pl- press their case to the people richard will have will win them over on on the merits alone yeah. so but you don't necessarily and even though that happens in this play you don't necessarily have the weight of it and the weight of his conviction yeah, exactly. behind it so yeah i agree with you that in isolation he's a little bit muddled and and the same kind of goes for edward the yeah. fourth he's he's a bit muddled only in the sense that his character and his flaws come out very quickly abruptly and then disappear and he's kind of won back the crown yeah it's, like he starts off as the, just the son of the duke of york and then yeah. when, when father dies like you can see he has a commanding presence and they cast it well there's a clive owen looking character yeah, in tall the BBC and version, very brash which yeah. matches the the description of edward the fourth as being very handsome and dashing right yeah. Um, so, but then as soon as he becomes the, the Duke of York himself takes over his father's role, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, a lot of the, the, I don't want to call them megalomaniacal, but they are kind of like, he just, he, he's very cocky and, and his, his wooing of Elizabeth Woodville or Lady Grey as she's named in the play happens very quickly. Um, very forthright. Very like, forthright. But it's, I think one of his brothers says, oh, he's the worst wooer in Christian or something right. like that because he's so upfront about it. Right. And that, I mean, I don't know how that squares. I mean, I think from the historical record, he was Edward quite charming. Had, yeah. yeah, it was very charming. And Elizabeth Woodville was not an old woman. Like, even though she's a widow, she's not, like, she was young and fairly attractive. And the only reason that he married her was because she wouldn't allow him to which sleep is with her, which covered is, in the comes play, out yeah. in the play, but it's all covered in one very quick scene almost. Yeah. And, and their their witty banter is not the same kind of witty banter that we've seen. Hardly any. In, yeah. Well, but that's yeah. supposed to that's supposed to pass off as the witty banter. As yeah, as yeah. flirting, yeah. right? Yeah. Um. So we don't. But I still think that what he what he represents is that the Yorkist claim and the power of having the people behind you kind yeah, of Yeah, because every time he he is knocked off the throne or the yeah. perch and he just raises an army instantly yes. again and the people flock to his banners. Yes. That's the most common refrain is that people want Edward the Fourth to be king. Exactly. I, and it's it's less because I, I probably in, in real life it was less because of Edward's charms and more because of Henry being incompetent. And, incompetent and, and incapacitated yeah, exactly, at times. Yeah. But um but in the play it, it it kind of I mean I think that that does come across that he is 
he's charming in his forthrightness, I think, and he's powerful. And there is a likability to him in, mm-hmm. a, in a certain way. Like, yeah. even when he's screwing over the king of France, you know, and when he sends Warwick off to uh, woo the daughter of the king of France to make this alliance, which would be very politically astute, and it's Warwick's plan, and it embarrasses the hell out of Warwick when he gets word that that yeah. Edward has actually married Elizabeth Woodville instead. Yeah. Um, you can kind of... You can see how Warwick is so has so much allegiance to this man, right? And then to to see how crestfallen he is that that this allegiance has been dashed because he's made a fool of him. Yeah. Um, and this is also historically true because Warwick immediately shifts allegiance to Henry the Sixth and gets Henry the Sixth back on the throne. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's it's yeah, Edward the Fourth I think is an interesting character. Warwick is maybe a more interesting character. We haven't talked about well, Warwick I didn't, a lot. See, but. I didn't find Warwick interesting at all because he's so easily swayed. And his in in real life, uh, he, we covered this in our in our War of yeah. the Roses uh, episode, is that he was so ambitious that you know he, nothing was ever going to satisfy him. Uh, and here you don't get that sense of ambition because the play wouldn't allow for another character with another set of yeah, motives right. to it's already three and a half hours long yeah. if, if he needed a huge monologue and then to suddenly nod and move people around it would have mm-hmm. been four and a half hours but really. i don't think that was part of his i mean it probably was a little bit in the historical record well, yeah but i think he was kind of like portrayed as the baddie in a lot of the historical records even now it's kind of like well work is work is the one he's the kingmaker mm-hmm. you know at the end of the day without if he didn't have that ambition to be the guy who helps the guy get on the throne mm-hmm. none of this would have happened right so i feel like that's there and it's hinted at in the play but his character never really comes into his own as a driving well, force for and, any of these And that might be because in terms of the characterization, you already have a character who is very steadfastly m- moral in Henry yes. VI. So to have a character like Warwick who is just... Amoral. And like <laughs> chaotic neutral. Yeah. Or, I don't know how you would... Yeah. I don't know. Can either. you be chaotic and lawful on yeah. the D&D alignment yeah, chart? I'm sure. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> anyway, he's, he's kind of... He just... He does seem like an opportunistic person. Um... But he's good at it, so yeah, kind of give him a pass for it. Yeah, and he does like he flatters his way back into the good books of Margaret and stuff. Well, he doesn't even he just stuff. he just basically lays himself prostrate at her feet and is like, like I'm you sorry. Know, take me back, and she's like, all right, let's yeah, do this. Let's kill. Yeah, let's make a king right? again. Yeah, and um, and that's the thing. So I think in comparison to Edward, Warwick is not as well developed either. But neither of them are really that interesting to me because. Hmm. They don't have um, the the sense of self uh, awareness that the other characters do. Yeah. Uh, especially Henry and my favorite Richard. Yes. Because here we you get the hints like you can see the parts that of Richard uh, Shakespeare probably wrote because this is the Richard that we get in Richard the Third. He's self aware. He hates he hates the world because the world did him bad by being mm-hmm. born um he's very clearly like he'll he'll wink and nod at the audience all the yeah. time about like yeah well judas kissed jesus too after he kisses his uh, nephew edward right. the eventual right. edward the sixth or edward the fifth sorry um so like he he has this kind of speaking of D alignment chart mm-hmm. he's kind of like uh like neutral evil kind of thing mm. where he's he'll play the cards but he's pure evil underneath yeah and and so that makes him an interesting villain in mm-hmm. a sense because he's kind of helping uh edward who's kind of lawful neutral yeah. thing i don't know he's a, he's a good guy but not super great because he's you know he's he wants to sleep with women all the time yes. and he has he has a negative side to him too so richard kind of fosters that along um and so what makes Richard, really interesting in my books is that scene that when he he and Henry meet and he murders Henry. Yeah. Because these are the diametrically opposed characters. Yes. Like Henry yes. is lawful good, maybe chaotic neutral or chaotic evil for yeah. uh, for Richard. And they have, and it's basically that, <laughs> you know, Henry gives his long-winded speech about, you know, what is good and I, I'm, you know, I shouldn't have to suffer uh, you here because I'm, I'm a king and I'm good and, uh, you know, heaven will look after me kind of yeah. stuff and then Richard's just like screw you you're talking too much and he just stabs him to death yeah, and that's yeah. kind of the end of it yeah. and it's it's a good summary of where those two characters kind of wind up and I thought that was actually the most interesting scene in a lot of ways um because of because of those two characters and I think uh yeah I would agree with you that's really interesting but I what I loved most about Richard the Third's character was 
and I again agree with you that you can see Shakespeare's fingerprints all mm-hmm. over this because um, one of his first monologues that he gives is when he talks about his how he's misshapen how he has no grace that was taken from him in his mother's womb and mm-hmm. uh, he talks about all of his physical deformities and his um, the perceived um, moral deformity I guess or yeah. moral lack yes. that people with disabilities physical disabilities would have been um, branded with branded yeah. with exactly yeah. in this time period mm-hmm. that continues up to this day basically um, so it reminded me so much of the opening monologue in Richard III. Yeah. Now is the summer of our discontent made glorious summer by the son of York. And he goes into a lot of the same, he hits a lot of the same yeah. notes, right? About what makes him lacking and what makes his brother so much better. And this is where it comes in. He's comparing he's comparing himself to both of his brothers, really. Yeah. And we do see that split between the Duke of Clarence mm-hmm. and King Edward IV, which um, eventually leads to the Duke of Clarence. Uh, murder because he ends up aligning himself with Henry the Sixth, yeah. but um, and is drowned in a vat of wine. Oh, yeah. Oh, I missed that part. Okay. No, it doesn't happen in the play. No, it I know in that. History, yeah, but... in history, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's it's interesting in that way that that there's a lot of the seeds of Richard the Third are planted here for Richard, um, Duke of Gloucester in this play, but you can you can kind of trace the thread through. I, I I'm really interested to reread. Richard III now and to watch the Hollow Crown too which kind of puts these all together because really the Wars of the Roses don't end until the Battle of Bosworth Field in 1485 mm-hmm. with with Richard III being defeated by Henry Tudor yeah. who is introduced at the very end of this play yeah. as a young boy who is the cousin or nephew you or something of Henry VI. he's like a he's like a half nephew yeah because it's like a half brother who it's gave his, birth. Yeah, it's his. Yeah, exactly. It's his brother. Yeah, half brother's son. Half brother's son. Who Henry eventually puts on the throne because his own son is yeah. is dead and gone now. Yeah. But um, yeah, so there's there's a lot of really interesting things about Richard, and I and I love the way that the first half of the play really does deal with this vengeance idea and this yeah. measure for measure, eye for an eye um, thread that really comes to a head when you get that battle scene where you have um well you have all the instances leading up to it too with Clifford killing Ratland and just lots of your father killed my father so I'm gonna kill you um but then it switches all of a sudden to this personal ambition when you get the introduction of Richard as a strong character and that really this is what's most interesting about this play is these these character moments right and that's where Shakespeare really excels is when you get Henry delivering a monologue that even though it's a bit trite and and dramatic he's talking about how he wishes he could just be a farmer Mm -hmm. and you're like yeah I get it I I want you to have that too like how awesome is that how awesome would that be or you get Richard saying you know I'm a deformed no one wants to have sex with me he's like the proto incel you know he just goes on a rampage because you know reddit red pill community said to do so but i mean in in reality it's it's the most compelling moment because it it feels real it feels yeah it's real motivation yeah it is and and that's something most of the other characters lack is besides vengeance they have no motivation because they're just running through killing people Mm -hmm. or they're they're setting out to regain the throne because it was theirs to begin with and there's well, no real reason for it it's just that's mine and, yeah, I want and, it and every, oh well you usurped it well technically my grandfather did yeah, so like, like what is that like it doesn't yeah it, like all the arguments about kingship and stuff mm-hmm. they're not very well done here except no. for Henry's kind of monologues on the subject the yeah. other approach is kind of the Richard approach which right. is like I want it I'm going to take, take it. I'm yeah. going to do whatever it takes to get the throne. Which because you I understand. can you can look at the historicity of it, and you can say that that all kind of started with the usurpation of Richard II, yeah, which is exactly. alluded to lots of times in yeah. these plays. That that and and even in the historical record, it's it's hinted at that once you've deposed a king, it makes it easy to depose future kings. And we haven't had a deposition of a king since I don't know when was the last James time a king II, was deposed. Probably. James II. Yeah. I don't think I mean, they've had yeah, one Yeah, I guess you're yeah. right. Yeah, Cromwell. Oh, no, I guess it, uh, no, after that with the Orange, William and Yeah, they Anne invited them over. They didn't. Mary of Orange? Yeah, William, William and Orange. Anne of Orange. Whatever, the Orange King the, and Queen. The Dutch ones. The Dutch ones. Yeah. Uh, but they were invited over by the Parliament. Right? Uh, right? Quote, like, unquote, invited well, over. Yeah, there was, there, yeah, yeah okay, this, there isn't, this yeah. isn't a, a, a 18th century podcast. We, we're getting ahead of yeah, ourselves ahead a little bit. But yeah, I mean, it just, 
the, once you've done it once, it makes it easier to happen. But um, even though these people have have fairly even claims, even but different claims to the throne, um, none of them have a convincing moral argument for why they should be the king, except for Henry. So, but his, but he's a bad king. But and he's that's a bad the, king. Thing, so yeah. it, it does make it quite conflicting. But it's it's to get back to the character moments. That's what that's what is compelling. It's yeah. not the actions of the characters. It's it's what motivates their actions that that really makes that sing. So why some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrown upon them. So, failings of the play? Yeah. Do I you mean, have an idea of what, what you didn't like, or what, what really well, grinded I mean, your gears? I think ground your gears? Ground my gears? Yeah, past tense of grinded is groaned. Um, <laughs> so, what groaned my gears this time, I think we've touched on most of it already, but uh, those back and forth battles, again, yeah. are kind of tedious, and uh, I thought they were better done in production this time, uh, than in part one because they showed a lot more off screen it was a lot of like and even the play itself has that where a character will rush onto stage and say oh I can't believe this happened we're gonna have to keep fighting but oh man I don't know if I can do it there was a bit more of that which yes. was which was nice um, but yeah the, the back and forth battles again and the fact that those battles kind of negated all political posturing uh you know, everything was decided through a feat of arms, not through individual character moments. Uh, you know, that's something, again, to go back to Game of Thrones, it managed to combine a little more expertly, you know, like all the big political backstabbings, like the Red Wedding was done partly because, you know, the phrase got screwed over by the Starks. So mm-hmm. it, it was a personal thing that had political ramifications and was expressed politically and personally. Uh, and here it's, it, the political machinations happen and are start off to be personal and then there's a giant army in. And they come and wipe everybody out, which is, again, probably more true to history because these battles were actually fought as opposed to a Red Wedding-esque stabbing in the back, literally. Uh, so I, I think that aspect of it hurts the sense of um, movement within the play because you don't really get attached to any one political outcome uh, because, you know, it's just going to be another battle. Um, and the play also doesn't do a great job of kind of uh, grounding the audience in that back and forth uh, sense. So it's mm-hmm. it literally just keeps happening. And every time you're like, oh, well, maybe this will be the thing. This will be the political decision slash murder that solves everything. Um, and it really doesn't. So uh, that those two aspects alone kind of overwhelm the whole structure of the play. Um, some of the writing wasn't great as well, I found. Uh, like you were saying, the very heavy-handed, like, oh, never has a son wept for a father more. Yeah. Never has a, fa- a son or a father wept for a son more. Never has a king wept for his country more. Like, that stuff is very, like, it's just so on the nose uh, mm-hmm. that it it was kind of painful to read and watch. Um, but then there were other parts that, 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 that reeked a little bit more of Shakespeare and mm-hmm. had that nuance that were, they were okay. But mm-hmm. uh, the writing, again, was... Was lacking at times. Although there were again some great insults. I mean, that's one thing about these these yeah. Henry plays has been uh, joyous reading all those insults. So. Yes, it has been. Um, what about you though? Did you have any other pain points that you noticed? Well, the, I mean, I want to talk a little bit about about the battle scenes because they are really tricky to do well. Mm, yeah, and it's hard. I mean. Shakespeare himself would write that these are things like almost write apologies. A lot of the time Shakespeare yeah. did this in prologues or in asides yeah. um, to yeah. say like, you know, we're limited by what we can do here. So a lot of these battles have to be depicted off stage or ha- by having characters come in and de- depict it or yeah. read it out loud or whatever. Like you're using words to talk about actions v- yeah. that are visual. Um, and I was, uh, I was reading the the essay that comes with the Folger edition, the mm-hmm. ebook that we were reading, um, talks a little a little bit about some different stagings that have been done, not just of this play, but I think referencing you know Akira Kurosawa and how um, battle scenes are done in Kurosawa films and how they evoke something that's not you're not watching a literal battle, and I think that makes it that's why I hate battle scenes because I don't need to see every strike or every blow of the hammer or sword or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the director of the BBC production is Jane Howell, by the yes, way. Yes, yes. Um, and that 
production does some interesting things with really dramatic shots. It's clearly not on a stage. It's done on, on a sound stage. It's mm. done with black backgrounds and you see banners going and you see, you know, fade ins and fade outs. And, and the final battle is, is sent during a snowstorm, which is a unique take. I don't yes. know. Well, I think it was true. It was historically true. Well, I think Tewksbury was in May, so I don't think it was, was true. The, was Tewksbury the last battle that yeah. we see on? I'm pretty sure. Either way, there was a battle that was fought during the winter, and so I mean that the even conflating the two, like it does make for some striking visuals. Yeah. Um, but again, you're limited by what you can what you can do. So, so staging a Shakespearean um, battle scene is going to be difficult no matter what. So you have to kind of take a weird approach to it almost yeah. to to make it work. And I was reading about. Um, an article in preparation for this about how how these plays would have been staged mm-hmm. and how other productions have gone about it. And it was written in the early years of the Second Gulf War. Mm-hmm. Um, so talking about how this is... A, this is exactly the time that we need to be talking about war. Yeah. So Shakespeare's plays, especially these history plays, are important to talk about, or important to put on. And there was a production that was done in... Uh, in London, I think in Haymarket, um, a production of a play called Road, Rose Rage, which is kind of conflating the Henry VI plays into two performances. Okay. And it was set, at least this production that they were talking about, which I think was from 2001. They were writing about it in 2004, I think. But in 2001, it was put on, and they set it in a Victorian butcher shop. Ah. And so you had butchers on stage with intestines and with, hmm. you know, things like that that represent the carnage yeah. in a way that that just having people yelling and brandishing their rapiers or, or whatever yeah. doesn't do. Or, or having someone run in with a banner with a red rose and a banner with a white rose and have them... But you can do interesting things with that. This production stays quite literal, I think, even yeah. though there are some interesting visuals to it. Um, but I find it hard to fault a Shakespearean play for the battle scenes, even though they're boring and they're kind of dry, because it is so hard to do, and you have to do it. You can't just ignore it. So I, I don't know. I think I'm not pushing back against that being one of the worst parts, because it is one of the worst parts. Objectively, it's hard to hard to get through. Yeah. Um, I just don't know. I can't offer a, a constructive alternative. Yeah. You know, unless no, you go yeah. like interpretive dance or something <laughs> like, you know. You have- well, or I mean, if you go big budget, modern Hollywood, yeah, you could show the battle in its full disturbing glory and then just have these extra but scenes I, or cut I, those I, scenes. And I then- do wonder about the artistic yeah, oh yeah, requirement for oh, that. Yeah, definitely. Def- there's you're, you're, no need to be gratuitous about it. No, and you're definitely changing the nature of the storytelling by yeah. doing that, right? So it it is a it is a choice. Ooh, and- another production I read about where they had um in the consecutive battles, like they would use um or maybe they would mix them up. They would have like modern weapons and the ancient weapons at the same time to show how maybe war isn't all that different then as it as it is yeah, now yeah. or or something. Like you could you can do that, mm-hmm. you know, on stage. Interesting in yeah. interesting ways. Yeah. But sorry I cut you off. I no, just no, had no, to say no, it before I forgot. No, that's totally a good point. Um apart from that, I think the other the other thing that, that does um kind of rub me the wrong way is just condensing so much into yes. one play. Wow. When when you have <laughs> part one that really is this drawn out lead up to to what is really the most interesting parts happen after that. Yeah. Like why couldn't you know, why couldn't the, the trilogy have started with part two? Yeah. Part three could be part two. And then you could have part three be uh, like the the next part be like split these battles up a bit or something like have have the passage of time not be so. Yes. Constricted. Yes. And it. Yes, there is. And that's the, that is the the hardest part of watching the play without, you know, wildly adapting the yeah. thing to say like oh six years later title card passes by or you know you have a messenger yeah. come on and say it's been six years since that battle it blah 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 you know like you could do things like that to, well, to help the audience understand yeah. the passage of time but the, the that's character trite. and well it's trite and the characters don't really allow for it within the dialogue like no. they're saying oh well yeah uh, 
uh, Warwick and the Queen are both talking to the King of France, and then that scene doesn't happen for three for three more for two or three scenes later. Right, but meanwhile, you've, yeah, you've got Edward kids. leaving leaving yeah. the stage, and Richard, who was just talking to Edward, sitting down and talking about Edward and his wife's his son, son, who, who hasn't, hasn't been, been born yet, yet yeah. because this play <laughs> just condensed six years into thirty seconds. Yeah, so things like that. Like, I mean, that is that is a hindrance to the to enjoying the play. Um, but I, I, again, there there's limited options for how to really fix that. Um, and that's probably something that Shakespeare in his later plays adapted a bit better, I find, yeah. um, is that, you know, he picks singular moments. You know, Henry V, it's not the entire life of Henry V. It's, oh, we're going to go invade France. Here's Agincourt. Here's the other battle. I can't remember the name ever. Uh, and here's him wooing Catherine. Yeah. Right. And that's it. Yeah. And and that's that is a much better it is. story because yeah. you're like, okay, here's a king whose whole thing is to get the the, the throne of France yeah. and let's watch him do it. And I think that represents two things. It's the growth of Shakespeare as an author, but I think it also typifies his reliance on source material, which I mean, up until well, even to this day we know that that there's probably more than one author of this play, but there's evidence that it may have even been based on a play, um, on a play by Robert Greene. Oh, yes. Which was published in 1595, interestingly titled The True Tragedy of Richard, Duke of York. Mm-hmm. So it takes the opposite view of of this downfall of a great Plantagenet king, um, which lines up very nicely with the eventual ruler at the time the play was put on. Yeah. Um, yeah, because this And one... the rightful succession of, of that line, which led to Elizabeth. But yeah, and this one is... I mean, yeah, Shakespeare's approach generally with the Lancastrians and the York is much more balanced. It is very much a pox on both their houses kind, kind of, of thing because as good as Henry the Sixth is as a person, he mm-hmm. is a bad king. They make he makes yeah. no real bones about that. Um, and Margaret is not, you know, a, a virtue of she femininity. She might be a, or a great military leader, but, but she's, she's not, not a good woman and yeah. a good queen. Uh, and neither is I mean York. Uh, no, no, York. Edward kills Edward the his nephew or yeah. whatever. You know Henry the Sixth's son in cold blood with mm-hmm. no. You know, there no, nobody is really a good person in no. this play except for Henry. Um, but Henry's not a good king. So the play's very even in its in its kind of condemnation of everybody, uh, which is, which you can only do because uh, the Tudors were a combination of both houses. So you can kind of, yeah. Shakespeare has that license to say, well, they were good on were, both, but bad on both. both exactly. Right? Yeah. But it's, it was interesting to me that the, that the play this may have been based on was, was more the tragedy on, of, well, exactly. of Richard it's, Duke of York. Exactly. Which, it probably leaned a little more towards the Yorkists being good yeah. perhaps or something like and that. It, right? And I mean, I obviously haven't read it. Green wrote it. And maybe that's part of the reason he was so critical of Shakespeare in A Groat's Worth of Wit, which is where the tiger's heart wrapped in a player's hide quote came from. Um, But if he used that as a source, um, it as a young writer or younger writer anyway, Mm -hmm. you're going to stick a lot closer to the source material if you have it. So, I mean, as he matures as a writer and you go through the the later plays, if this play had been written, or if you look at the second tetralogy, the the major tetralogy that comes later, um, it's much clearer that Henry V, for example, is a much better play the, yeah. the three parts of Henry the fourth are much two parts di- of Henry the fourth, sorry yeah. two parts of Henry the fourth Henry the fifth yeah they're written much better yes haven't read Richard the second so I can't speak to that yeah one, but, it's it's a little um, bit better but it's still it's still it's still buried a little bit in in the historical muck uh more than the other ones I think so yeah I mean I think these are all forgivable sins yeah as far as I'm concerned it's it's hard to criticize them um but it, it doesn't mean that I love it. So that's just my thinking. If I longer stay, we shall begin our ancient bickerings. So, as is our tradition, we have our marriage counseling section. Yes, yes. I guess. Is it a course? It's not a course. This is what not to do, maybe? No, I don't know. We haven't been divorced yet. That's a good point. That's a good point. Maybe Maybe it is working. Um, We are going to debate the same question. Wait, I didn't say that right. We are going to debate the same question that we debated way back in, was it part one or was it in the Wars of the Roses? It was Wars of the Roses. Who was the better king? Yes. Edward IV 
or Henry the Sixth. Yes. And if you remember, if you are a loyal listener and you you remember our our episode, whichever one that was, we don't even remember it. it was, so how it could you remember? Was it the Roses? Okay. okay. Um, I took the side that Edward the Fourth was the better king because he was good looking. Um, <laughs> and he had a better claim. He had a better claim. You. You yes. Spent, yes. You spent a lot of time. I did. I on even claim, I yeah. even uh, convinced you that he may have a better claim. Yes, to I did. And then I. Yes. Shut it down the rest of the argument pretty quickly, but yes. You took the side I that Henry the Sixth was, was better king. king because he was a bad king, which doesn't make a lot of sense, but it did back then. So um, we're going to switch it up this time because yes. when in talking about this, we've we've come to the realization that uh, our views have changed, much like Shakespeare's well, writing process that will change <laughs> as we go through the plays. We've matured since. And and to be that clear, debate. <laughs> yes, to be clear though, we're talking about the characters yes, as presented in these yes, plays, not the historical figures. Yes. So, uh, you know, does Lindsay in this case? You are going to expound on the the, the greatness of the pious Henry the Sixth. So yeah, I'll allow you to go first. All right. Well, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Um, I think yeah, as as far as the character of Henry the Sixth goes in the plays that Shakespeare wrote, um, he is. He's a more balanced king. He's not... No, I won't say balanced because he's not a fighter. He's a lover, not a fighter. But Mm -hmm. I I appreciate that about him, that he has a diplomatic uh, strain to him. And that's something that comes out very early on when he says that, like, words will be my weapons or something. Um, He attempts to diplomatically talk Richard, Duke of York, down from his own throne, from from Henry's own throne. Um, And it works... Until everybody leaves the room, but while you're while you're in his presence, and I, I found that very captivating as we watched the play. I think this is why Shakespeare needs to be seen, not just read, because in reading the play, I didn't get this sense. But watching the play um, with this actor, uh, Peter Benson, who plays King Henry the Sixth in yeah, the we've Jane talked about him a lot. Yeah. we've talked about him a lot. We should credit him properly. Um, we didn't like him to begin with. Because he was, <laughs> yeah, kind of. It was cast. a, it was oddly cast. And even when you look at him now, you're like, wow, he looks a lot more like Henry Tudor than he yeah. Henry the Seventh than he does Henry the Sixth. But um, either way, by the end of it, his portrayal of Henry the Sixth, when given these deep monologues and and the moralistic tone that he takes, I bought it 100. percent I was like, this this is a guy who wants what's best for his country, and truly believes that the best for his country is to not fight. He does not want to empty the country in order to assert his will. He he's he's not going to stand for more civil wars. He hates the fact that that these families are are fighting. Um, he hates it so much that he's willing to disinherit his own son, which goes against everything that he believes as a king as a, a man of God um, or an, an anointed king mm-hmm. whose son should follow him. Um, I think that that is remarkable mm-hmm. and as far as kings go because you don't, as far as leaders go, because you don't often see leaders, even today, it's, it's something to be remarked upon when you have a leader who takes a, a measured diplomatic approach. Um, and that's partly because of the sensationalism of, of current world politics and and the news media and the way that this stuff is all presented. But I just found it refreshing to see a king who is measured in his approach and is is um, willing to take the unpopular stance that war is not, especially someone who is, whose father conquered France. Mm-hmm. You know, his father was this great milita- military leader and the apple fell so far from the tree it's in another field. But he doesn't apologize for it. Yeah. He wishes that his father had only left him good deeds, not this this vainglorious battle um, legacy or military legacy. Uh, so I think that's that's something that's something remarkable, and and especially for um, a historical king who was reviled and unfairly perhaps demonized for his failings, his mental illness, and his physical um, incapacity. Uh, For Shakespeare to treat that kind of sympathetically almost, to give him kind of the moral mouthpiece of, to make him the moral mouthpiece of the play, I think uh, he was a special character to Shakespeare too. So that's, that's why I think he's a more successful king in the context of these three plays, or at least in the context of this play. Okay. I mean, that's not bad. But I'm wrong. Well, you are a little wrong. 
in the sense that he doesn't do anything to become king. So he's not really a successful king in that sense. He just gets tossed to and fro. And at the end, he doesn't even want to be king so much that he just literally abdicates power. Yep. Um, So is he a good king? No, because even he knows he's not a good king. So he's kind of defeating your own purpose there. Um, Edward IV, I got to say, there's not much going for him realistically, um, but he does want to be king. He does want... And he he has some kingly virtues to him. He like is, what? He's very steadfast. He will he pursues his goal. Uh, he is he does perhaps not look out for the common person, but he is loved by the common people, and I think that's a sense that. Uh, they provide in the, a bit of context to his character mm-hmm. is that the people do love him. We mm-hmm. talked about this already, but it's it's that sense provides a bit more grounding for his whole character. The other thing, he's very chivalric, um, not so much in his wooing of Lady Grey, uh, Elizabeth Woodville. It's it's a little less than chivalric, but he he does pursue his love. Mm-hmm. I mean, which is a very chivalric value. He sure. he uh, he falls in love with her, and he he decides to marry her. Come what may. Um, even when that leads to more, more civil war. Um, so in that sense, he's he's kind of good. Um, he also uh, he's a good military leader, which was very important at the time. Um, and that's that's all I got. So he's not. <laughs> I mean, I agree with everything you said. Henry the Sixth is a much more interesting character. Yes. He's a more uh, he's a better person. Mm-hmm. But Edward was a better king uh, in real life, perhaps. And uh, in the play, I get the sense that he was the king that people wanted. He was going to be the one. If Henry came back to power, even in the context of the play, someone who didn't want power is never going to be a good king. Right. And that was made clear when he stepped aside to give Warwick power instead. Yeah. Warwick was actually the king. The kingmaker had been made king by the Henry The setter up and puller down of kings. That's right. Had been made king himself. Yes. So I think the, the play kind of tells you that Edward's the, the better king. I'm I'm still going with Henry. I think I think anyone who's going to be led by his dick as much as Edward the Fourth is is uh, not to be trusted. Yeah. Well, that's most men. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was our discussion of of the third part of Henry the Sixth. Yes. Um, our next topic will be a, a a kind of a fun topic for us. I think we're going to dive into. Um, this myth or this trope of Shakespeare is boring. Yeah. Boring old crotchety Shakespeare. Billy S. Billy S. No one call no one calls boring people Billy S. They call him William Shakespeare. Except for uh, Sky Sweet them, but that's okay. Oh, we're, we'll we're going. That's a deep cut. That's that is a, a 1999-2000 wow. era cut right there for you. I think we'll put that as the outro music for this episode. <laughs> so, yes, uh, tune in in a couple weeks for our discussion of Shakespeare as boring trope. Um, we hope you enjoyed this discussion. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at the Bixpod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash thebixpod, or by email at thebixpod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.